0: Celebrate the progress that you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Curiosities today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Curiosities.
1: Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild.
0: Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. I'd like to think that everybody has an innate talent, something they can do that just comes naturally to them. It might be drawing, or playing a musical instrument, or picking up a new language. Or how about walking out of prison? Not once, but four times. Now, that last talent belonged to Stephen J. Russell, born in North Carolina in 1957, and raised by a religious couple who had adopted him as a baby. At the age of nine, he learned the truth, and he didn't take it well. His birth parents had had several other children and never attempted to make contact with their firstborn, which sent him into a spiral. By the time he was 12, he was setting fires and getting into fights. As he got older, he discovered some things about himself, though. For one, he was very smart. Very, very smart. He knew how to read people and gain their confidence quite quickly. He also had a knack for mimicking people's voices, skills that would come in handy later in life. However, before he turned to a life of crime, he worked on the opposite side of the law as a police officer. He even married the chief secretary in 1976. But he was also gay, an admission that ended his nine-year marriage in 1985. Russell lost his job as a result of that admission, and his attempt to get a new one proved difficult. Because he was fired from one job after another, his desperation eventually turned to poverty. And then, Russell came up with a plan. He started selling fake Rolex watches, eventually graduating to even bigger cons. He pulled off a slip-and-fall scheme that earned him $45,000 in payout. Unfortunately, once he got a taste for crime, he just couldn't help himself. Russell was arrested after applying for a fake passport, and while out on bail, he met someone special. His name was Jimmy Kemple, and the two fell quickly in love. There was just a little issue in Russell's six-month prison sentence. The con man couldn't wait that long to see Kemple again, so as soon as he got inside, he just started looking for a way to get back out. He paid attention to the guards' schedules, watching when they'd take their smoke breaks so that he could wander off and look around. He stumbled on a room where female inmates were being stripped of their regular clothes before receiving their prison uniforms. He swiped a pair of red sweatpants, a tie-dyed shirt, and one of the guards' walkie-talkies. Wearing this ridiculous getup. Russell took an elevator to the first floor and walked out the front door. And nobody stopped him. And this was in 1993. He was arrested the following week at the airport before he and Kempel could hop a flight to Mexico. Again, Russell was released on bail, and this time the two men managed to hightail it south of the border. Sadly, Kempel was dying from AIDS and in need of better health care than what he was able to get in Mexico. Russell was picked up again after coming back to the U.S., and pulling another insurance scam to pay off his boyfriend's medical bills. But passed away a few weeks later. But love would bloom again for Stephen J. Russell, in the form of Philip Morris, an inmate with the charming southern accent who Russell had spotted in the prison's law library. The two men were paroled in 1995, and Russell took a job as CFO of a large company called North American Medical Management, or NAM. The only problem? He was completely unqualified. He'd padded his resume with outlandish claims, and his references were all phone numbers belonging to him. He managed to embezzle almost $800,000 from the company before getting caught, a kind of Robin Hood scheme he'd undertaken as payback for how medical companies had treated his late boyfriend. Russell, as usual, was taken into custody. This time, his bail was set at $900,000, punishment for having made a fool of the justice system multiple times before and an amount too high for him to pay himself. Not to worry though, because he had a plan. Of course, he had a plan. He called up the courthouse from jail and impersonated the judge's voice, telling the clerk to drop the bail to $45,000 instead. And they did. Russell paid and went home the following day. The authorities quickly realized what had happened and picked Russell up at Morris's home soon after. The judge had stopped playing around. He sentenced the man who had strolled out of jail twice with a 45 year prison sentence. Russell wouldn't be caged that easy, though. While incarcerated, he bought a bunch of green magic markers from the prison commissary and emptied them into the sink in his cell, which he had filled with water. He soaked his prison whites until they were dyed a pale shade of green to match the scrubs of the visiting doctors, and once again, waltzed right out of the prison through the front door. He and Morris fled to Mississippi after that, but were soon found again and Russell was sent right back to prison. Sometime after that, the press interviewed him about his numerous breakouts, but noticed that he wasn't his usual happy-go-lucky self anymore. He was sad, despondent. Russell told them that he'd been diagnosed with HIV, and he was dying. He lost a lot of weight over the next year and was eventually moved to a secure nursing home to live out his final days. During his stay, prison authorities received a call from Russell's doctor. Apparently, there was an experimental trial for a new HIV drug, and Russell had been chosen to participate, but he had to act fast. It wasn't fast enough. The doctors phoned the prison again a few weeks later to tell them that Russell had died. It wasn't until a man walked into a Dallas bank and applied for a $75,000 loan that they realized that the King of Khans was still alive and well, and up to his old tricks. And how did he do it? He faked his medical records using a prison typewriter, then reduced his food intake, swallowing laxatives to move things along. By the end of 10 months, he was half his old size. After all, he had watched a boyfriend succumb to the effects of AIDS and knew how to mimic the symptoms. Today, Stephen J. Russell sits in solitary confinement, the weight of a 144-year prison sentence heavy on his shoulders. His spine is compacted from a lack of movement, and he fights every day to maintain his sanity in a 6x9 cell designed to break him mentally and physically. But he hangs on, buoyed by the support of his friends and family who visit on the weekends. He also writes and gives interviews to the press on occasion. However, his habit of breaking out of prison? Well, that seems to have run its course. Although someone should probably check and make sure.
1: It's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. Most people hope to accomplish one great thing in their lifetime. It could be writing a novel or learning the piano, or maybe just winning the lottery. Few of us will ever achieve such feats, and even fewer will go on to do more. One man, however, didn't learn to play an instrument, nor did he win the lottery. But he is remembered for his many great accomplishments. For example, he was the German Robin Hood of his day. He was a poet, a warrior, and he was among the first cyborgs. Goetz von Berlichingen was born to German nobility in 1480. Raised in what is now modern-day Bavaria, he joined the military at the age of 17 to fight for the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. He struck down enemies across Europe on behalf of the emperor for the next several years, but grew weary of fighting in service to a king. By 1500, he was on his own, working as a mercenary. It was during a siege in the small Bavarian town of Landschut when Goetz's right arm was blown off by an enemy cannon. Such an injury would have sidelined other soldiers, forcing them away from battle and back home to nurse their wounds. But not Goetz. He sought the expertise of local blacksmiths, who provided him with a replacement arm. They fashioned for him a rudimentary prosthetic made of metal and leather. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to do much with it, so he had a better, more advanced arm constructed instead. His new prosthetic limb had fingers that could bend at the joints. Berlickingen would use his left hand to operate the unique spring-loaded rod system inside that was so precise he could curl the metal fingers around something as sturdy as his sword or as delicate as a quill pen. Once again able to wield the sword, he went back to work as a mercenary. He carried out vicious acts on behalf of those who hired him, as well as people and even whole towns who had wronged him. In 1512, he let his beef with the city of Nuremberg get the better of him when he attacked several merchants returning home there after selling their wares in Leipzig. His former employer, Emperor Maximilian I, got wind of the raid and issued an imperial ban, which meant that he lost all his rights and was free to be killed by anyone else without consequence. He spent two years as an outlaw after that before paying the steep fine of 14,000 gulden for his freedom. He used his newfound freedom to continue his one-man war against the people and places who had offended him. He traveled to Hesse, home of the Hessian people, 19,000 of whom fought for the British during the Revolutionary War, and carried out his next attack there. This time he kidnapped Philip IV, Count of Waldeck, the head of state under Emperor Maximilian. His new crime earned him another price on his head, and another banishment. He had no interest in sitting by while fight carried on without him, though. He came to the aid of Ulrich I, Duke of Württemberg, in 1519, when the Duke's town of Machmul was under attack by a peacekeeping outfit known as the Swabian League. Berlikingen, however, lacked the supplies needed to defend Machmul properly and was soon captured by the opposing army. It was too bad that he'd made so many enemies during mercenary days, since he was given over to the town of Heilbronn, which he'd raided quite a few times in the past. But Berlikingen had also made some friends, too and two of them, fellow knights themselves, came to his defense. With their help, he was only forced to pay 2,000 gulden, and he was free to go. Oh, and he had to promise not to go after the Swabian League for revenge. Which he didn't, but he did find a new cause to fight for after that. In 1525, he and his metal arm fought alongside hundreds of thousands of poor German farmers in what came to be known as the German Peasants' War, they had risen up against the aristocracy for better land rights and more freedom. And Berlichingen, himself being a man of means and born to a wealthy family, had no problem joining their cause. His participation is what earned him the nickname the Robin Hood of Germany. But he eventually deserted them once he saw that they were less invested in the challenge and merely after blood. Gotz von Berlichingen died in 1560 at around 80 years old, leaving behind an impressive legacy as a one-armed, iron-fisted knight who fought for the poor and was hated by almost every town he met. All of this was discussed in his memoirs, which were adapted into a popular play in 1773. Today, both of his prosthetic arms, Mark I and Mark II, are on display in his birthplace of Janksthausen, Germany. The town even boasts a depiction of his metal hand on their shield, Making it a true coat of arms. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.